0: Thank you so much for coming. I'm not unaware that we live in a time where there are lots of different things that buy and compete for our time and attention. And in the face of all of those possibilities, you have chosen deliberately to come and worship with us tonight. I thank you for that. You have been an encouragement to this church. You have been definitely an encouragement to me personally. And I thank you very, very much. I've said for many years that the most beautiful sight I've ever witnessed, and I've seen some beautiful sights in my time, none of which compare with the assembling of the saints of God together. We're all so different and yet so much alike. We're all headed so many different places and yet all of us are going to the same place. We're all studying so many different things and yet all of us are settled on one document above all others. And that makes a very special people. And so we're headed somewhere. We're going to a place that is better than this. Uh, this world is not our home, as the song says. We're just passing through. And so we spend our probationary period here, equipping ourselves with the characteristics of the new man, in order that we might deport ourselves in such a way as to incur the favor of God and go home to glory. When it's all concluded, wonderful song service tonight. I don't know anybody who makes better announcements than Edwin does. That's the hardest job of all, and he does it quite well. It's good to be with you and to see so many people that I've loved and appreciated before. Several of my preaching friends are in the audience tonight. I'll not try to name them all. Some of them are very special to me. I was in a place. I was in a place where. Uh, we were having a good meeting, and we had about 10 or 12 preachers in the audience one night. And the young preacher who was introducing me said, and I quote, We have a lot of preachers here tonight, he said. In fact, I, he said, I think we may have more preachers here than we do Christians. <laughs> and, and, and he couldn't figure out why everybody was laughing when he got, thank you for coming. I want to do something that may sound a bit strange to you tonight, but I think by the time we get through with what we're doing, you'll see the sense of it. I don't want you to get your Bible unless you just feel constrained or duty-bound to do so. I would like to have your undivided attention, though. I'm going to read the Word of God, and I would like you to listen not just passively, but actively. I would like to ask you, if you would, to just make up your mind right now on this instant that you're going to listen to every word that I read from the Word of God, like you've never listened before, perhaps. I shall read from Luke the 18th chapter. And he spake a parable to them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint, saying, There was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man, which cried day and night to him, though he bear long with them, I tell you he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith upon the earth? And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself God. Be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. And they brought unto him also infants, that he would touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Suffer, little children, to come unto me, and forbid them not. For of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God, as a little child, shall in no wise enter therein. And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is one good, None save one, that is, God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, All of these things I have kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing. Sell all that thou hast. And distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they that heard it said, Who then can be saved? And he said, The things which are impossible with man are possible with God. Then Peter said, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or parents, or brethren, or wife, or children, for the kingdom of God's sake. Who shall not receive manifold more in this present time, and in the world to come, life everlasting. Then he took unto him the twelve, and he said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitted on. And they shall scourge him, and put him to death. And the third day he shall rise again. And they understood none of these things, and this saying was hid from them, neither knew they the things which were spoken. This narrative, ladies and gentlemen, comes late in the personal ministry of Jesus Christ. He has about finished his personal ministry. His coming demise is present with a ferocity. He understands what awaits him at Jerusalem. He feels already the pain that will be there. He feels the discouragement of his disciples. And he is working so diligently at this point in his personal ministry to make his disciples see for a certainty that the kingdom is not what they think it is. That the kingdom is not like Solomon's kingdom or David's kingdom. That he's not going to raise up a military army and with a huge uh, phalanx walk across the reigning Romans. They think wrong about the kingdom. Sometimes we do. The kingdom is not always the church. The Bible speaks of the kingdom many times in regard to the personal reign of Christ in the hearts of people. And Jesus is trying to get them to see that. The one thing that keeps popping up in the narrative which I have read and to which you have listened so diligently is kingdom of God. It's over and over and over in that narrative, if you read it. And Jesus wants His disciples to be prepared for this kingdom. He wants them to see that this kingdom is going to require certain things of them. That they're going to have to do things that are unpleasant. They're going to have to do things that are against the culture in which they live, that their society will not be the governing force in their life. And the kingdom which is coming is not a kingdom that is of this world, but a kingdom that reaches off into eternity and attaches itself to the very throne of God Himself. And so he wants them to see what the kingdom is. Kingdom has to do with the reign of Christ. Sometimes it's used metonymously to describe the church. There's no doubt about that. At Caesarea Philippi, Jesus said, to "...whom do men say that I am the Son of Man am?" And they gave him various answers. And he said, "...but whom do ye say that I the Son of Man am?" And the impetuous apostle Peter said, "...thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God." And he said, "...blessed art thou, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven." And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom. Here the kingdom is equated with the church. Sometimes it is the case, but not always. Just prior to the narrative which we read back in chapter 17, verse 20, And when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, He answered and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither shall they say, Lo, here or lo, there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Now make no mistake about it. The church is the kingdom, and the kingdom is the church because the personal reign of the king in the hearts of the people is what constitutes the saved of God. And please be advised, you're in the church to be saved. No, sir. You're in the church because you are saved. The church is the saved. That's the kingdom. Those that have enshrined, sanctified Christ as Lord in their hearts. Now, having said those things, may I proceed to what Jesus is trying to get His disciples to see as necessary things about their existence in the new kingdom. He says, first of all, you must be a praying people. And he says there was a judge and there was a lady that was driving him crazy. And he said this woman kept after him and after him to avenge her of her adversaries. And he was a fierce judge, probably a Gentile judge, because the Jewish people would have had more than one judge, actually. And so he says, I'm going to have to do something about her. She's driving me nuts. And so he said, I'm going to avenge you of your adversaries. And so he did so. And Jesus said, hear what the unjust judge saith. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry to him over and over? We must be a praying people in the kingdom of God. He said, we must always pray and faint not. I suggest without much fear of contradiction that it may be the case that prayer is the most neglected thing in the lives of most people. And one of the things that gets in the way of our prayer is the culture. We're too busy making a living. We're too busy educating our children. We're too busy taking care of our physical bodies with exercise. We're too busy studying the philosophies of man and becoming intellectual. We must, ladies and gentlemen, as the people of God, not forget, Prayer, prayer is so important. I once made a trip to preach a meeting in Baltimore, and I told the preacher there I said, "I want you to leave Thursday all day open for me because I'm going into washington d c on Thursday. I never had been." I went into Washington, D.C. on that Thursday, and as I got off the train, I thought, my, there are a lot of people here. Well, I was astounded to find out later that by a process of pure serendipity, I had chosen to go to Washington, D.C. inadvertently on the 200th anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. There were 250,000 people and more on the mall in front of the Capitol building. I saw everybody that was anybody. They all came by. Ted Koppel was the master of ceremonies. I saw all of the senators seated over here, all of the House of Representatives seated over here, all of the Supreme Court judges over here, all of the bureaucracy over here. I saw everybody that was anybody, people that I just thought existed on television. They were all there. And suddenly I heard a siren, and all of a sudden I looked down what was then Pennsylvania Avenue, and here came the presidential entourage. All of these helicopters were hovering over the Capitol building. There were men walking around on the top of the building with guns, loaded guns, obviously. And here came the president. He got to right where I was, and he looked at me right in the eye, and he waved to me. Now, don't you laugh at that. I know there were 225,000 other people there, but he looked right at me when he waved. He made a speech that day. That made you proud to be an American. I went home that night, preached, wrote these words or similar ones in my journal. I said, today, I heard the President of the United States make the most stirring speech about America that I ever heard in my life. It made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. It made me proud to be an American. I said, they don't call him the great communicator for nothing. His words were beautiful vehicles of the highest kind of thought, I said. And he impressed me. I said, today, I joined 250,000 people in person, and perhaps as many as 2 billion on television, and I heard the leader of the free world. But tonight, I said, I will speak with God Almighty. There's a huge difference in those two things. God is the creator of the universe. Why would we not want to be in His presence as often and as regularly as we can? Why would we not like for Him to hear from us? Why would we not seek to incur His favor? Why in the name of common logic would we leave things in His way instead of getting to Him? We're too busy with the things that have to do with our society, with our culture, with our home life. We must not let that happen. Prayer is a part of who we are. The two great things in life are speaking to God and having God speak to you through His Word. There are no higher things than that. There is no fonder intercourse. There is no better way to spend time than to meditate upon God Almighty and to express yourself to Him. He's interested in the smallest things about you. He's interested in everything that you need. You can pray to Him about anything that you need to pray about. Anything that you feel a weakness with. He's there to listen. He cares. He said, when the Son of Man cometh, shall He find faith on the earth? What He's asking is, will He find the same faith that this simple sectarian had? She had enough faith to keep after the Master, to keep after the Master. We must have that kind of faith also. God wants to hear from us regularly. When Paul said, pray without ceasing, that does not argue that you get up on Monday morning and you say, Our Father which art in heaven, and you pray all day long until you go to sleep that night and you say in the, in the name of Jesus, Amen. That is not what that's saying. But it is saying that you should pray consistently. It is saying that you should pray regularly. Now, my question is a very simple one. Is prayer even a vital part of your life? Is prayer something that you feel is important in your life? I hope so. It's hard, and I understand that. We become so inundated in the things of this life we we whirl around in amounts from a various and sundry things that we feel are so compelling that we just hardly find time to just uh Listen, you don't have to pray a long prayer. I pray two or three prayers that are three words. And one of them, I think, that God's heard me say so many times, He's probably tired of it. Over and over. I say, God, help me. God, help me. Why can't you say over and over and over, when you look into the eyes of a little grandchild, or when you look in the eyes of your own offspring, why can you not turn a moment to God and say, Thank you, God. We've made prayer so formal that we've left God out of our lives because we think we have to start with our Father which art in heaven. Prayer is something that is vital. It causes a dynamic in our lives. It causes all kinds of good things to happen. It keeps us in touch with the Creator. It keeps us in touch with His Word. It keeps us in touch with His people. It keeps us in touch with His providential care. We invite Him into our lives when we pray. We make ourselves available to Him. We present ourselves to Him when we pray. We must do it. And I said to you last night, and I mean this sincerely, we need to learn to pray out loud. We need to hear ourselves say, Oh, God, my Father. We need to hear ourselves say, Thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ. We need to hear ourselves say, I am weak, oh, God, forgive me. We must get in touch with Him. Because if we're not in touch with Him that way, the chances are we're not here either. And both those things are absolutely essential to our spiritual welfare. We must have the kind of spiritual sustenance that comes from imbibing the refreshment of His Word and taking advantage of the glorious opportunity of saying, Hello, Lord. Well, that isn't all He said here. He spake a parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed, thus with himself, God, I thank thee. Pharisees were interesting. You know they were the conservatives of their day. Be careful before you condemn them. They were the conservatives of their day. And they were sometimes somewhat like us. I get so tired of preachers having their own vernacular in this age. I do do not understand why there has to be a special sort of vernacular for preachers. They can't say God. They have to say God and then grunt after it. Or they say, you have a responsibility or a spiritual obligation. Uh, It's just information, folks. It's just the preached word. We should say it as well as we can. We should articulate it with as much verve and talent as we can muster to put behind it. But we must not be ostentatious. There is no place... Hear me carefully, ladies and gentlemen. There is no place in the kingdom for ostentatiousness. There is no place in the kingdom for pomposity. And there is no place in the kingdom for bloviation. And I was using that word before I ever heard of O'Reilly. <laughs> we must guard against self-righteousness in the kingdom. The Pharisee said, God, you can all assume, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are. And he prayed thus with himself that he was thankful... This is not what God is looking for. God is looking for somebody who has total confidence in who He is. He's looking for people who have a feeling of warmth, a feeling of devotion, a feeling feeling of filial feelings for their father, their real father. Listen to me. We don't call God our father because He's like our fathers on the earth. We call God our Father because He is our Father, and our fathers on the earth are to be like Him. We make that distinction without any kind of hesitation because we need desperately to see our Father as somebody who is interested in our righteousness, but not our self-righteousness. We are a fellowship of forgiven sinners. I suggest to you ladies and gentlemen that when we are divorced from our relationship to God we have absolutely no worth and that goes for anybody who's divorced from the relationship to God your worth is not determined by your intellectual ability or what you can accomplish in this life. Your worth is not going to be measured by your portfolio. Your worth is not going to be measured by how talented you are at some endeavor. Your worth is going to be measured by your relationship to God and the grace that He has in that relationship. And no other way. And So we need to divest ourselves of our self-righteousness. You know what self-righteousness does? In the first place, it retards evangelism. I tell you, if we need anything in this generation in the Lord's church, it is to get out of our comfort zone. To turn the air conditioner off, or to get out of the air conditioner and go out in the world. We talk about planting the seed. And we go through all kinds. We'll have people in to teach us about how to teach. We'll have people in to preach to us about how to preach. We'll have people to come and preach to the sinners and all that. And we we want to get ready to put this seed out into the world. And all the while, the seed is still in the barn when it needs to be out in the world. And Brother Crozier and I can't do it by ourselves. You need to sow it. He prayed fervently that we might be lights, that we might be those who shine, that we might be salt. Now, you won't get much credit for that. But if you're so self-righteous that you sit in your comfort, you're not going to get anything done for the Lord. Salt is interesting to me. You ever go to the steakhouse? Uh, We went to the chop house. Had a good meal Saturday night after we got in. They bring you this nice sirloin steak, say. You're there and the candle's burning brightly and you're looking across at your wife of 20 years and you're having an anniversary. And they bring the steak and you take your steak knife and punch into it. And all of a sudden the sauce is radiate out of the holes where you punched. You take your knife and you begin to saw. And all of that succulent goodness runs down into what you've got. And you pick that thing up and take a big old bite of it and chew it and it tastes so good. And you look at your wife across the the candlelight and you say, man, that is wonderful salt. You never did that, did you? But try it without the salt. Salt. You are the salt of the earth. You're not going to be seen. You're not going to be felt in the way that you usually think of being felt. But your self-righteousness will retard the effort to get the seed out into the world. To get the salt out where it needs to be to flavor the society. To get the light out where it can shine out from under a bushel. So, the old publican. I love how this is said. It says that he would not so much as lift his eyes to heaven. He knew what he was. And he knew what he had been. But I'll tell you something else he knew. He knew what he could become. And so he said to his father, Father, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the beginning of acknowledging the Savior. is acknowledging your lost and undone condition. And so when you just step out of our self-righteousness, He said, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified. Do you know that the radical idea in justification is forgiveness? That's what this is talking about. He went down to his place forgiven. That he might be just, Paul says to the Romans, and the justifier of them that believe. Well, we must guard them against self-righteousness. We must develop a spirit of humility. They brought unto him infants that he would touch them, and when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. And Jesus called them unto him and said, Suffer, little children, to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. You get the significance of that? Here are his disciples, and he's trying to get along toward Jerusalem, you know, and He's trying to discuss his disciples. He's no longer particularly interested in the huge crowds. They've mostly rejected him by now. But he's interested in getting these chosen vicars to to seeing what the kingdom is really all about. And, and so he says, "Don't do that." They, they're saying, "Run along now, run along now." The master is busy. He said, "Don't do that. Suffer them. Allow them to come unto me." For of such is the kingdom of God. And then he turns to his disciples and here's the pointed finger. He said, I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God. Now, that's not the church. That's the reign of Christ in your heart. Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter in. Little children are wonderful. They are humble." Do you know that humility is the predicate for all learning? You never will learn anything if you can't bring yourself to say, I don't know. My son Russ preaches in Beaumont, Texas, about 90 miles from our house to his house. And we picked up a little Haley's oldest daughter one time. We were going back to Houston. Norma was talking with Haley and Haley said, uh, "Nina, why, why are red lights red and red? Red means stop, and green means go, and yellow means everyone one way in a row. Why is that? Well, Nana explained that to her, and she told her how the lights are on different sides and like that. We drove a little further, and she said, Nana, did you ever wonder why grass is always green? And we went a little further, and she asked this question and that question. We didn't even get out of Lumberton because there were 4,1202 questions that were asked. And finally, we got about halfway there to Winnie. And she turned to her grandmother and she said, Nana, tell me things I don't know. God help us to have the attitude of a little child. Tell me things I don't know. And somebody then comes to me and they want to say, Do you think I have to be there on Wednesday night? Why in the world would you not want to be there? Look what's being discussed. That's like a West Texas guy saying, do I have to eat this homemade ice cream? Why, that's ridiculous. It's ludicrous. Where would you want to be when the Word of God is being served? Little children are not only humble about that, they're forgiving. They're forgiving. One time when Russ was little, he did something that just burned me up. I took him to his room, spanked him right good, and literally threw him on the bed. And I said, you stay there till I tell you to come out. I walked down the hall. His mother met me in the hall. She said, "Uh, honey, do you think you might have spanked him when you're mad? I told her who was the head of the house. And I went out the back door mad as a wet hen. I slammed the door as hard as I could. I got in the car. I backed out screeching the tires. I went down the lane, fishtailing all the way to the highway. And I got to the highway. And I got up on the highway going as hard as I could go. And I caught a look at my visage in the rearview mirror. And I thought to myself, you big dummy. You did spank him when you were mad. You sinned against the boy is what you did. I went back. Hardest thing I ever did. I nearly didn't turn into the lane. But I thought, well, I did it. I've got to do something about it. I went in. I went down to the room where he was, and he was wound up in a little old knot, crying his eyes out. I picked him up, and I set him on the edge of the bed, and I said, "Rusty, your daddy's a human.'" I've sinned against you. I whipped you when I was mad, and I want you to forgive me. I'm sorry. He said, it's okay, Daddy. Just don't cry anymore. It's okay. Don't we need that kind of spirit? Except you become as little children, you shall in no wise enter in. And little children are trusting. Did you ever notice that? They don't get up in the morning and say, "Are we going to have anything to eat today?" No, they know it's going to be there. They trust the father to provide their clothing. They know that their daddy is going to take care of them. That they fall and bruise a knee, and that their mother is going to succor them when they need it. They know they're going to be cared for because there's love in the home. That's the kind of attitude God is looking for in the kingdom. He's not looking for pomposity. He's not looking for self-aggrandizement. He's looking for somebody who says, Here am I, Lord, send me. This fellow that asked him here. He said, Why are you calling me good? There's none good. But you know why he says that? He's saying, are you calling me good just to flatter me? Or are you calling me good because you recognize me as God? That's the question. This rich man, he came up and said, what must I do? You know, I read one commentary that said this was Saul of Tarsus, maybe. And before you laugh at that, read Philippians chapter 3. He had a lot of the same qualities that the Apostle Paul had. Saul of Tarsus. I doubt that see him. But the other renditions of this say that Jesus loved him when he saw him. He really genuinely cared for him. And, and the man said, what must I do to inherit e- eternal life? That is, to get the kingdom. And, and, and Jesus said to him, why are you calling me good, as I pointed out? And then he said, all these things that you've said here, I've kept from the youth up. And he said, you lack one thing. You know what the one thing was? He let something get between him and God is what he did. And all it takes is one thing. It might be golf. It might be some kind of an idea that you want to promote. It might be some kind of uh, uh, hobby that you're engaged in or some kind of business enterprise. Anything that stands between you and God Retard your relationship with him. He said, Go sell everything you got. And then he gave him a real hard part. He said, Come, follow me. That's the hard part. Selling the stuff was not the hard part. Selling it and then going with him. He could look at him and say he didn't have anything. I mean, he looked at all those ragtag multitudes of guys that are following him around. Uh, they got one cloak, maybe, and now finally have a sword. <laughs> And they're going along here, and he says, I don't believe I want to be any part of that. My sandals are polished. I got on velour here. When he heard that, he went away sorrowful, for he was very rich. You know what's interesting? He was very poor. He was very poor. He had nothing. Here is that fellow who's divorced himself from the Savior. Lacking one thing, so close and yet so far away. When Jesus saw that, he was very sorrowful. I think that's one of the most interesting parts of this passage here, that when Jesus saw that this fellow rejected him based on some temporal, corporeal, fleshly thing, he was very sorrowful. I don't know if he cried here or not. The boy bowed his head, and in his mind he just felt so poorly because this young fellow could have been so much help and didn't come. How sad. He said, how hardly shall they that have riches enter the kingdom of God. Then he gives an illustration. He says, it's hard. It's easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to go through. I've heard that explained, you know, that there's a gate over in Jerusalem that. The camel has to be in there. That. That's, that's, this is a, a hyperbole, folks. He meant to say what he said. He said it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a little needle than it is for a rich man to go to heaven. Now, he does not say it's impossible. He says it's harder, but I'll tell you how it is impossible, except God get involved in the business, it is impossible. That's just the way it is. And that's what he says. Peter said, we've left all. And they said, who then can be saved? He said, well, the things that are impossible with man are possible with God. And they said, we've left everything. You know what his answer to that is. It's interesting to me how he answers this. Oh, I can't wait to meet him and to hear what he says about stuff. He says here, uh you, you, what you left here is a bunch of trash. He said, you didn't leave anything. Whoever these lands and houses and fathers and mothers and sisters and daughters, no matter what it is, and all their lands and houses and everything for me. He says, when you do that, you will receive manifold more in this present time and in the time to come, life everlasting. I would not take anything that I own for having been a gospel preacher. I've been a miserable failure at times. I've made some of the poorest choices you can possibly imagine and said things that I should not have said in inappropriate times. I've bowed my head to God many times and asked Him to forgive my foolish pride. But I am so thankful that I've got you. Brothers and sisters, I'll tell you what I could do, folks. I could start in Tampa, Florida, and go to Seattle, Washington, and never stay in a motel. Because the people of God are always there. And I've been with people this week that I never had met before, and I feel closer to than some of my own kids. Why is that? I'll tell you why it is. Jesus Christ is why it is. And our commonality is something greatly to be desired and something greatly to be treasured and something to be managed with care and concern. Receive manifold more in this present time and in the life to come. Eternal life. Need I say it? If you miss heaven... He's just missed all there is. Then this kingdom is really going to get down to serious business. He took the twelve and said, Behold, I go up to Jerusalem. All the things that are written in the prophecies are going to be fulfilled. And he tells them what's going to happen. I just can hear him saying this to them. They don't understand. They don't perceive They have no conception of what the kingdom is yet. And yet he's trying to get them to see that the king is going to be crucified. What in the world kind of a kingdom is that? What in the world kind of kingdom is it when the king sets up the kingdom by dying? Who ever heard of such a thing? Well, the prophets did. That's who did. They knew I didn't see the passion of Christ, the motion picture. I'm glad it was done because I think a lot of people have a new conception of Jesus and what He suffered on the cross. Instead of those Renaissance pictures where you seen Him with a little cut in His side and a little bit of dripping blood from the crown of thorns, that is not the picture that's painted in Scripture. When Jesus died, ladies and gentlemen, He was a bloody mess. They had dragged Him and beaten Him. They had taken Him and scorned Him. They had scourged Him and hurt Him. They had done everything you can do to Him. And this made no sense to them about the kingdom. But it is the King. And without this, there would be no kingdom. And He knew that. He was well aware. He was cognizant to the end of what He was doing. He knew where He was headed. He knew the ultimacy of it. He knew the inevitability of it. I went to Jerusalem... I saw the little street where they say that he dragged across. And the reason I didn't see that movie is because I want what the book says to be my picture. And I see him being dragged down that street. I see Him dragging that cross as long as He could until the loss of blood made it impossible. And then the Romans exercising their right, because that's who they were, constrained another man to bear the cross. They could only make Him carry it for a mile, but He had to do it. And so they put Him under duress to carry it. And Jesus is being shoved from side to side. And I have a picture of Him in my mind. I see Him being shoved over here to this side and falling at the feet of some woman. And blood is streaming down his head, and his open back is just hurting profusely. And, and, and all of this is made worse when he looks up into the eyes of this Jewish woman, and she spits in his face, and the spittle spit runs down his beard and commingles with the blood. And they dragged him off into that cross area. And they made a cross for Him that was made, ladies and gentlemen, out of the wood that He spoke into existence originally. And they nailed Him on a cross with spikes that are made out of the minerals that came out of the earth that He created. This is the Son of God that's hanging on that tree. And then they with great might raise Him up and with a thud he falls into the mother earth that He created. What kind of God is this? Can you get a hold of that? Can you understand why the kingdom is so important? Because the king died to make the kingship what it ought to be. And they didn't understand why you had to die. They thought that might be the end. They were scattered abroad, but all of a sudden the Sunday morning came and he raised out of that bed, and the kingdom came into existence. You know why he did that? I'll tell you why he did that. He did it for you, and for you over here, and you back here, and you back here, and you over here, and you and me. What a savior! What a marvelous Savior we have who gave Himself that through His death we might entertain with hope a heavenly home. We don't have to wonder about the kingdom. We know what it is. How in the name of common sense can we wed ourselves? Hear me carefully, people. How in the name of common logic Can we wed ourselves to a culture that offers us nothing when we neglect a kingdom that offers us everything? That's the question we face tonight. And so you have to decide. The king came forth. His disciples saw him, and I wish I had time to preach to you about those two little men on the road to Emmaus. They're my favorite Bible characters. I'm one of them. And it was seen of Cephas, the men of the twelve, and then of above five hundred brethren at one time. The angel said, He is not here. He is risen. Oh, glorious thought. The king is on his throne. Oh, glorious thought. And i tell you, he wants you to be in his kingdom. He wants you to be a part of that kingdom. He died so that you could have life. Know you not That so many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into His death. Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together with Him in the likeness of His death, we shall also be with Him in the likeness of His resurrection. Oh, glorious thought. To be with the King and all his wonderful subjects. If you've not obeyed the gospel, the King said to those very men who didn't understand just a few weeks ago go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. They now understand what he meant about self-righteousness. They now understand what he means about prayer. They now understand why you can't be like the Pharisees. They now understand that you must be like a little child. And he said, go you and you take that good news everywhere that you can take it. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Have you done that? I wouldn't be your friend if I told you that you all you have to do is accept Jesus as your personal Savior. That won't get it, folks. The Savior didn't say that. The king never made that pronouncement. His annunciation of the kingdom said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Either believe it was baptized, he would say. So if you would come and repent of your sins, confess it unashamedly, without timidity, before this group of God's people, and let Brother Edwin baptize you into Jesus Christ tonight. You can go home, a child of the King. There is no greater joy than to sing, I walk with the King. Hallelujah. Would you come to Him tonight if you owe a beauty? Just as you are, while we stand and sing.